Okay, today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 17, 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Before we start, I, I want to thank some people for this weekend. We, yesterday, especially, we were moving stuff in for this resident couple that's coming in, the Fords, who are going to be living in one of the resident clubs, and it was unfurnished. And so, as a church... We, I mean, we announced it like twice, and people gave bunk beds, beds, mattresses, kitchen gear, everything. We outfitted that whole place yesterday, thanks to the people who were willing to take something from their home or from their storage unit, or they were moving. God brought everything together, and so they're going to come in on Thursday, having driven 10 hours with four kids under eight, and they're not going to have to move any furniture, which is kind of my goal, is they'll bring their food in, they'll bring in clothes, but we have provided for them. And uh, everybody that helped yesterday, we had maybe a dozen or 15 of us yesterday, uh, but I definitely want to thank especially Bert and uh, Joseph and David. They were carrying a bunk bed down our stairs yesterday at our house, and I didn't know if we were going to do worship this morning or hospital visits after that. It was one of the heaviest pieces of furniture uh, that I've ever moved in my life. And so thank you guys. Thank you to the ladies that put the kitchen together. We're going to welcome this family in this week. Um, in a very Carlton Landing way, with hospitality, um, with gratitude. They're going to do a wonderful job this summer. So thanks to everybody who's contributed to that. Our story this morning in the Gospels is called the Transfiguration. It's in all the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about this event where Jesus suddenly, almost randomly, on the top of a mountain, takes his disciples, and he's transfigured. This is the word metamorphosis in the Greek. He is changed into a glorious, resurrected Son of God. And it's hard to know what to make of this story. Why, not why is this included, but why did it happen? Why did Jesus do this? Why, why in the weeks leading up to his death did he go up on a mountain that's way away from Jerusalem? And show his disciples a vision of what he would look like when he was raised. I think one of the reasons is God loves to show us a glimpse of the end of the story right at the beginning of the story. Maybe you've had this happen in your life, and we'll talk about ways that God often does this. He often gives a vision of what's coming in the end with none of the intervening steps right at the beginning of the journey so that you will know what you're looking forward to, what you're going to, what God is going to do in the end. 
Now, this isn't always a good thing. Um, when we were at dinner the other night, we, Laura and I have been watching the show All Creatures Great and Small. If you watch that show, it's a fantastic show. Except we're having dinner with this couple that also is watching that show, and they said, well, did you love the episode where this happens? Well, that's in season three. We're only in season two. <laughs> Spoiler alert, now we know what happens <laughs> in this part of the show. And spoiler alerts are not, not great, but imagine if you're starting a marathon and you didn't know how long the run would be. If you've ever run a marathon or a half marathon, you know that part of the reason you get through is because you know where the finish line is. You know how far you're going. In fact, I had a buddy one time that signed up for a half marathon, took the wrong turn in the middle, and was like, when is this half marathon going to end? <laughs> And hours later, you know, when you rejoin with the stragglers on the half marathon who are still finishing as the marathoners are finishing, that's where I was when I ran my half marathon, he's like, I have worked so much harder than these people have. And when you start out something like that, the thing that often gets you through is a glimpse of the end. And what Jesus is doing in this story is he's showing the disciples a glimpse of the end. This is a pre-resurrection vision of the raised Christ. See, what's happening in Matthew's gospel is this is a turning point in the gospel. All the lead up to this, Jesus has been talking about his kingdom, how to live, who he is, and from this point on, he talks almost exclusively about how he will be put to death and rise from the dead. At the beginning of his journey, geographically, as we'll see in a minute, down to Jerusalem to be betrayed and crucified and put in a tomb, he begins to show his disciples how God is going to bring them through and what the end goal is of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, if, you're, if you've been with us in the first 17 chapters of Matthew, you'll notice a trend here. Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom, and there's a big buildup in chapter 16 where Peter finally gets it. He says, you are the Christ the son of the living God. He confesses who Jesus is before the disciples. And Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. My father revealed that to you. And immediately he says, and I will be crucified. And I'm going to die. And I'm going to be rejected. And you see, the disciples have a really hard time with this because they're, not, they're, they're in on what they think God is going to do in the end, but they don't understand what God is going to do to get there. And what happens is Jesus starts talking about his death, and Peter, who just a moment ago was so right, is back to the old Peter, so wrong. If you look at chapter 16, verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, raised. And Peter, this is, one, I think, one of the funniest verses in the Bible, Peter took him aside and began rebuking him. <laughs> okay. You never want to find yourself in this position. Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins rebuking. That's not, that's not the way it's going to work. That's not what God's going to do. God, God isn't going to allow you to go through this kind of trial. And Jesus says that's exactly what God's going to do. This is where Jesus has some of his strongest words in the Gospels. Far be it from you, Lord, Peter says. This would never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Shortly after this, Jesus tells his disciples, it's not just Jesus who's going to go through something like this. It's every follower of Christ who's going to go through something like this. Jesus says the way of Jesus is that if you would follow him, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Whoever would save his life will lose his life, but whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. For what does it gain a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and repay each person according to what he has done. And truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this is getting really grim for the disciples, right? They've got this teacher, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is going to go through one of the most catastrophic, embarrassing, humbling series of events. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's not just that. You will go through these same things. And it's in the midst of this turn in the Gospel of Matthew that it says Jesus takes his disciples, Peter and James and John, and he leads them up a high mountain by themselves. And there on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So what's happening here? He's told his disciples what's going to happen, and now he's giving them a little glimpse of what happens at the end. Jesus, when Peter confesses he's the Christ, has been really strategic about where he's taking his disciples. He goes up to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is enemy territory, spiritually enemy territory, culturally enemy territory. And at the gates of death, or so they thought, these were the gates of hell, he says, I'm going to build my kingdom, and nothing, even death itself, will not be able to stand against it. Coming from there, it says that Jesus goes up on a high mountain. Well, commentators love to guess what mountain this is. We don't really know what mountain this is, but there's three big candidates. I'm not going to go into the candidates. I think this is Mount Hermon, and the reason why is because Mount Hermon was a place that was associated with the foreign gods. Think like Mount Olympus, where the gods live, but the Israel version of that. This is the highest mountain in Israel. It's 9,000 feet. It's up in the north. It is desolate. There's snow on it on the top year-round. It would have been a terrible place to spend the night for the disciples. And Jesus goes there intentionally because from the time he is at Caesarea Philippi, he is making his way to all the significant places to show he is king over everything. This was the ancient place where Baal was supposed to have lived the great foreign god that Israel had followed in the period of the judges and the kings. This was a place where foreign kings had arrayed against Israel from time immemorial to conquer the people of God. This was a place that's associated with the kingdom of Og and the area of Bashan in the Old Testament that you read over and over again where there were giants and spiritual interference with the plans of God. See, what Jesus does is he goes right to the heart of of the difficulty, right to the heart of enemy territory, and there he shows them that he will be the risen, conquering king over everything. So in this story, what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus is giving us a picture of who he is and what he's doing, and particularly he's giving us a picture of what it looks like when you've seen the end, but you're somewhere in the middle. When you know where God is taking you eventually, but you have no idea what the next step is. That's where the disciples are going to find themselves between here and the crucifixion of Christ a few chapters later.
So when you've seen the end goal, but you're in the middle, a lot of times it starts with a mountaintop experience. This is literally a mountaintop experience, but for most people, if you think about your life, your spiritual life, you can trace some key moments back to mountaintop spiritual experiences, whether that was a camp or a revival or a church service or a conversation with a friend or coming down to the front and praying. You can think of these mountaintop experiences in your life, but the only problem with mountaintop experiences is at some point you have to come down. Jesus has a mountaintop experience with his disciples. They spend the night up there, and then they come down the next day. Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, teaches, and then he comes down. They have the great prayer time on the top of the mountain, and then they come down into the storm. The rhythm of your spiritual life, it should not surprise you that after a mountaintop experience, you often have a valley experience. This is the way God is conditioning us to follow him. He'll show us on the mountain what he has for us. And then we go into the valley and we play it out in our experience. When I was in college, I had a mountaintop experience. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. No idea. was majoring in math, like I told you last week, and figured that was really going to make things work for me. And I was working at Canicut Camps in Branson, and we were in what's called a party barn, which is just the most amazing place you could ever imagine for a kid barn swings and ball pits and games and everything. So we are, for the thousandth time, chunking these kids off this barn swing. And all of a sudden, as I'm standing there, it it felt like the whole world just collapsed in where I was standing. It was almost like when you're looking at something in front of you and focusing and everything else kind of goes out of vision. And there was a heaviness and a voice And the voice said, mouthpiece. I thought, this has got to be the heat. Mouthpiece. And just like that, as I felt like I was going to be crushed into the ground, then it was gone. And I was back to normal. I was totally overwhelmed. I called my co-counselor to come up to the top, went down, fell asleep on the ground for like three hours. Wake up thinking, where am I? And where are my campers? Where are my kids? So I go back to the cabin, and I'm, I'm praying that night, and I'm asking God, what was that? What was that? What are you trying to tell me in this moment? And as, the more I prayed about it the next morning, the more clear it became that God said, here's what I want for you. I want you to give your life to me in ministry. I want you to give your life to full-time ministry. And I want to work through some things in you in the prophets. So when you get done with camp, I want you to start reading the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And I want you to read them not just as antiquated Bible people, which is what I had done up until that point. I want you to read that as people who have been tasked to bring the Word of God to a people who don't want to hear it. And then God said, and I, I also want to take some sin areas out of your life immediately. Things that I'd been piddling around with and not really making war on and not putting to death in my life, it's time to get serious and put these things to death because I need you to be free from those things to do ministry. Well, this was an amazing experience, except I didn't have a job in ministry. And I didn't have really any big prospects for jobs in ministry. And as time went on, it developed, but for the rest of that summer, and when I went back to school, it was like, How do I get back to the mountaintop? Because God has shown me what's coming, but nothing in the intervening time would lead me to believe that this is going to come true. 
And as I followed God, and as I did that, sure enough, things started to open up. Things started to come into my life that I thought, maybe this is the way that God is going to fulfill that vision in my life of what he has. In this story, a lot of times what happens is, like the disciples, we see something amazing that God has for us, whether that's reading your Bible or whether that's God showing you something or whether that's some, somebody speaking it into your life, but then you have to deal with the frustration and the confusion and the disappointment when you get back to normal, that it hasn't happened yet. See, the second thing I want you to see is the confusion that the disciples have about what God is doing. One of the first things that happens when you have an experience like this is you try to start putting the pieces together. And I'm so thankful we have Peter in this story because Peter is always the one to voice the confusion that's happening in these stories. See, when Jesus is transfigured and is glowing and there's this amazing display of his glory, Peter begins to open his mouth and say, Lord, it is good that we are here. <laughs> Things you should never say. If you have to say that it's good for you to be there, chances are it's not that good for you to be there. For Peter, why would you announce at the high point of Jesus' ministry thus far, why is he thinking, well, it's sure a good thing I'm here. <laughs> sure a great thing that I'm here to witness this. Sure a great thing because I could put together some shanties is what this means in the Greek. I, I can put together some little tabernacles for you all to stay here. P I mean, Peter, in, in Luke it says, he said this because he doesn't know what to say. Right? You've been there. You, I said it, but it was just because I had no idea what to say. Spiritually speaking, Peter misses everything about this mountaintop experience. He has no idea what God is doing in this moment. What's interesting is when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, Moses and Elijah appear with him. And this is odd, you have to admit. This is just kind of the way that the gospel writers tell us this in a very pedestrian manner. Yeah, Jesus, he was transfigured, and then these two dead guys show up, Moses and Elijah. Of course, Elijah didn't die. Elijah was swept up, and so Elijah reappears. Why is Elijah here? Well, you know, Elijah had been greatly discouraged after a mountaintop experience. You know, Elijah, his, the most famous moment in Elijah's life is on Mount Carmel, which is just a few miles from this mountain. And what had happened was he challenges all the worshipers of Baal to a contest. And they build these altars, and they get their sacrifices ready, and Elijah says, you guys call to your God, and I will call to my God, and whoever is the true God is going to send fire down on these sacrifices. And so in 1 Kings chapter 18, the prophets of Baal cry and pray, and they ask Baal to send down fire all day, and nothing happens. And then Elijah bends down on the ground and begins to pray, and he asks God to show that he is the one true God. And when he does that, fire comes down and devours the sacrifice and laps up the water and burns the rocks and I wish Chuck Bokel were here this morning, who's in our church, because he's a combustion engineer, and he has written a paper on how much energy it would take to do this. And after reading that paper, I, I don't know kilojoules at all or anything like that. So I was like, put this in regular terms. It's like a tomahawk missile comes down and devours the sacrifice. It's like 11 lightning strikes come down, and God made it clear to everybody on the mountain that he is the one true God. But you know what happened after that? Nobody repented. 
the revival that Elijah wanted, what he thought God was going to do, didn't happen. In fact, the next day, after the mountaintop experience of seeing God do this, in 1 Kings 19, Jezebel threatens to kill him. By this time tomorrow, Jezebel said, you'll be dead. Elijah flees to the wilderness, depressed, frustrated, angry. He knew what God wanted to do. And he thought that he had figured out the way God was going to do it. And then he realized that God wasn't coming through the way he thought he was going to. So Elijah retreats to the wilderness. And in fact, the story of Elijah doesn't get any better as the story goes on. He never again has a moment like Mount Carmel. In fact, when he's in the wilderness, God sends an angel who cooks him a hot breakfast, and he sleeps and he gets rest, and God tells him, you need to appoint a successor. Your ministry is over. So as you read on, Elijah does okay with appointing the successor. He gets one out of three, and he gets taken up after he appoints Elisha. He gets taken up into heaven never to see the fulfillment of what he wanted God to do. But it's so amazing that Elijah's story is not over in 1 Kings. See, Elijah comes back and on the mountain of Baal, of the mountain where the, 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 the stronghold of the foreign gods that he had been opposing, he looks into the face of the one who will bring ultimate revival. Amen. He looks into the face of Jesus, who is going to set the captives free. He's going to dispel the foreign gods. He's going to die on behalf of his people. He's going to achieve everything Elijah was working for. And I almost wonder if God spared Elijah so he could send him back for this moment and see, I will fulfill my promises. You will look on the face of the one who will bring repentance and grace and salvation to my people. Peter, hopefully, was looking at Elijah and thinking, see, God fulfills his promises. Even in the confusion, God speaks. You notice that as all this is happening, there's a bright cloud overshadowing them and a voice in the cloud that says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I almost wonder if this is directed at Peter. <laughs> as Peter's speaking, it says, another voice comes and says, stop talking. This is Jesus. Listen to him. See, the greatest thing you can do in the period of confusion is not try to figure it out on your own. The greatest thing you can do is listen. Oftentimes what God does is he takes these moments of discouragement and frustration and anger, and that's when he speaks into our life. Listen to Jesus. Look into the face of Jesus. In confusion, Listen to him. There's another thing that happens in the story. Things begin to change. In the midst of all this, when God speaks into the cloud, things begin to change. And that's what happens in the intermediate time between what God is going to do and what God is currently doing is he is going to change us along the way so that when we get to the end, we're ready for what God has in store. See, this, this event picks up another thread that runs from the very beginning of the Old Testament. It's not just Elijah who's on the mountain, it's Moses who's on the mountain. The greatest of the people in the Old Testament is there with Jesus. And what's fascinating is, in the Luke account of this story, 
it says that Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking. And, and it's almost like you wonder, what, what would they talk about? If you had Jesus and Moses and Elijah together, what would they talk about? And Luke tells us they were speaking about Jesus' coming exodus. They were speaking of his coming exodus. In some of the translations, you'll see it saying they were speaking of his departure. But the word departure in the Greek is the word exodus. In fact, we just took that word into English straight from Greek. It's the exodus, which is what Moses led. It's, the the tie-in in this story is unbelievable, that what Moses experienced with the people out of Egypt, the exodus that we read about in the Bible, Jesus and Moses are talking about a truer and greater exodus that is about to happen. Souls who have been in bondage who are going to be freed because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What happens on this mountain is something that fulfills a plan that God had started thousands of years before. When Moses was on the mountain in Mount Sinai, he too was overshadowed by a cloud. But if you remember, as God was speaking and the cloud was there and the pillar of fire was there, it says Moses could not go inside the cloud. And he asks God at one point, I don't even need to see your face. I could just settle for seeing your backside as you pass by. And God says, if you saw that, you would die. God is so holy and so glorious that if you were to see that, you would instantly die. Even Moses, who it says right before his death, God spoke to face to face like a friend, couldn't see the glory of God and live. But what happens in this story is Jesus begins to radiate the glory of God. See, the description that's given here, he transfigures into a white, bright light that no one could bleach, it says in Mark. His face shines like the sun. His clothes are as white as light. This is the description that we get in the book of Revelation about Jesus, where it says, in the new heavens and the new earth, the city will have no sun or moon because the glory of God will give light and the Lamb will be the lamp that shines on the city. See, here... Moses asked to see God, and he said, you can't see me and live. And the moment that God gave the call for Moses and Elijah to go back down into the promised land that Moses had never been before, it was to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Moses got to see what he had longed for, what he had asked for. In the cloud before, he couldn't see God, but now he can. Now he does. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we too, by looking in the face of Jesus, are beholding the glory of God, and it changes us day by day. See, before, no one could see God and live. But now, through Jesus Christ, anyone who sees God will do nothing but live forever with him. Here's the last thing. Notice how this story ends. So God speaks and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. This happens almost every time somebody encounters God in the scriptures. It doesn't happen at all today, which is kind of a separate sermon, but I just want to point this out. It doesn't happen at all today. They were terrified and Jesus bends down and touches them saying, rise, rise have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes from the ground, it was just Jesus. It was just Jesus. This is so significant. What happens in between the glimpse of glory that we have, things, things that will come to pass, 
things that we'll get to experience in the future and where we are now, the presence of Jesus. That's it. The presence of Jesus in the chaos and the confusion and the frustration and the anger and the suffering, the presence of Jesus. They looked up, and the only thing they saw was the face of Christ. Now they've come inside the cloud with Jesus. They've seen his glory, and they're left in the presence of the Savior. You know, many of you have seen Tim Keller passed away this week, and Tim Keller has always been a hero of mine, so influential in my life, even though I never met him. And I thought it was so interesting in the last days of his life, his son, who's now a pastor at Redeemer, which is the church that he planted in New York City, his son put out a message asking for prayer, and he was relaying some words from Tim Keller as he was going home to be on hospice. And he said, I'm so thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family who loves me. I'm thankful for time God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. And it reminded me of hearing a talk that he had given. It was an interview. And somebody had asked him a question. What would you tell somebody who is anxious and unsure about the future? What would you tell a young Christian or a young person who's worried about what the future holds? And he said this. If Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead... If he really got up from the empty tomb, then you know what? Everything's going to be all right. Whatever you're worried about right now, whatever you're afraid of, everything's actually going to be okay. So you have to remember that we're not just talking about resurrected people. This is where Christianity is unique. Christianity says it's not just your body that's going to be raised, but the whole world is going to be renewed. That the new heavens and the new earth is going to be cleansed from all evil and suffering and sin. And if Jesus is raised, then the whole world is going to be raised. And in the end, everything really will be okay. Amen. I thought that was so prophetic for the way that he struggled year after year with terminal cancer knowing. In the end, Jesus is risen. God is going to make it right in the end. So what I want to leave you with this morning is the same point that he made. If Jesus has risen, which is what he's showing the disciples, here's a vision of what's going to happen. Jesus is going to rise and be all glorious, and you're going to be in his presence forever. If Jesus has risen, the journey there will be worth it. That's what he leaves with the disciples. If, if this is the end, then anything that comes in between will be worth it and made right in the end. Jesus has risen. Look at what happened to the disciples in the interim. They fell short, but now they're glorified, and they're with Christ in his presence forever. Look what will happen to you in the end. See the risen Jesus. We get to see the whole story, but see the transfigured Jesus as what God often loves to do, give you a glimpse of the end at the very beginning to show that if Jesus is risen, the journey is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this. You didn't have to give us a picture of this, but you did. And so often in our lives, Lord, you give us just enough assurance to trust you. Even when we don't know exactly where we're going, we don't understand all that you're doing in our life, Lord, you provide for us. You sustain us. You give us what we need to follow you. So this morning, Lord, as we come to your table, we ask that this nourishment, this gift, what we do each week here would remind us 
that you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You have filled us with something that we could never do on our own. Father, as Jesus says, anyone who takes this bread and drinks from this cup, who gives their life to him, will live forever. So, Father, as as we come, fill us up. Give us hope. Give us confidence. Give us assurance of what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.